I try to have an inherent playfulness with everything I'm doing because especially with these kinds of conversations, it's really easy to start to take yourself very seriously. You know, you're playing with the human condition at large and what everything means and these huge questions that we'll never be able to answer that everybody's been wondering about for thousands and thousands of years. Welcome to the Art of Humanity. I'm your host, Jessica Ann. This is my podcast where you can listen for fresh perspectives with artists, leaders, authors, and your favorite entrepreneurs. You can explore creativity and consciousness, evolve your business with the art of humanity. Now, here's this week's episode. Welcome to episode 48 of the Art of Humanity. I'm so thrilled that you're here. In today's episode, I talk with fellow podcast host and co-creator on the Mind Pod Network. The MindPod Network is a collective of like-minded, independent podcasts. Here you will discover shows about art, psychedelics, consciousness, sex, death, culture, personal development, dreams, society, Eastern philosophy, the paranormal, and much more. The fellow hosts on the MindPod Network include artists, philosophers, filmmakers, astrologists, authors, witches, and a living wizard. (laughs) Despite our differing backgrounds, we are all pointed in the same direction. If you go to mindpodnetwork.com, you can find other podcasts that may appeal to you, with guests that I've interviewed here on The Art of Humanity, such as Zach Leary, who I interviewed on episode 22, Michael Donovan from episode 20, Noah Lampert most recently on last week's episode 46, and today's guest is also on The MindPod Network. He has a podcast called Third Eye Drops and his name is Michael Phillip. This interview is more of an intellectual investigation of sorts. We both love philosophy, so we get deep into it. Please note that this episode contains depictions of reality that some people may find disturbing. I'd like to read this quote by George Bernard Shaw. He says, Reasonable people adopt themselves to the world. Unreasonable people attempt to adopt the world to themselves. All progress, therefore, depends on unreasonable people. The unreasonable people reminds me of the life of a mystic or a linchpin, change agent or a maverick, someone who believes in the spiritual apprehension of truths that are beyond the intellect. And this episode is all about going beyond the intellect, or rather suspending belief, which, for better or worse, is where we're at in this post-truth era. Post-truth denotes circumstances in which objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotion and personal belief. In the book Becoming Supernatural by Dr. Joe Dispenza, science and research prove that beliefs actually change our brainwaves. If the person doesn't analyze the information they are being exposed to, they're likely to accept, believe, and surrender to it because there's no analytical filter. Most interesting is the fact that Dr. Joe Dispenza uses science and research to prove that beliefs actually change our brainwaves. He writes, as brainwaves slow down, you leave the domain of the conscious mind and enter the realm of the subconscious mind. This brings me to today's episode with Michael Phillip. In this episode, we discuss what is technodharma, how we can recontextualize the mystical experience through technology, and the transcendental dimension beyond language. If you like this podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your pods. Here's an example of a review that came in from my friend and colleague, Patrick Cook, who goes by Shamrock on iTunes. 
I just listened to my first podcast from Jessica Ann, where she interviewed legend Seth Godin. I was mightily impressed by how skillfully she navigated the interview to make it insightful, filled with actionable content, and entertaining while simultaneously putting her guest at ease, provoking him to deliver bombs of wisdom from his extensive career and experience. I highly recommend this podcast, and I have become an instant subscriber. Well done, Jessica. Thank you so much, Patrick, for that review. Here's episode 48 of season 5, my interview with Michael Phillip. To get all of the links and show notes from this episode, go to artofhumanity.io slash episodes. Enjoy! Michael refers to his podcast as a mind meld and a wondermongering. It's a self-described technodharma where he conducts an ontological juggling act and discusses the intersection of reality and consciousness. He waxes poetic about philosophy, art, consciousness, and ties it all together through the fabric of the human experience. Michael, thank you so much for joining me on The Art of Humanity. Thank you so much for that intro. That was spectacular. You know, nobody likes the act of writing their own bio or what they're about or what their show is about. And it's, a, it's one of those questions that, of course, you're always going to get. But I would gladly sign off on that. So thank you so much. Oh, my pleasure. I love Third Eye Drops. I love the name of it. And you've really done such a great job of articulating the the vernacular, the experience of us humans, the mere mortals here on earth. And I absolutely love that you describe your podcast as techno-dharma. In Indian religion, dharma is the eternal nature of reality. And in Hinduism, dharma is defined as a cosmic law underlying right behavior and social order. When we attach the word techno before dharma, we exist in the mystery of technology and humanity. So I don't want to limit you with mere definitions because after all, it's all about the experience and it's not always linear. So with that in mind, can you take us back to the beginning of your journey and explain what techno dharma means to you and how third eye drops came to be? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, with everything, I try to have an inherent playfulness with everything I'm doing because these kinds of conversations, it's really easy to start to take yourself very seriously. You know, you're playing with the human condition at large and what everything means and these huge questions that we'll never be able to answer that everybody's been wondering about for thousands and thousands of years. And I know I'm not going to answer these questions. I know I'm not going to solve the existential riddle that's woven into the fabric of existence. I know I'm not going to solve these things. But at the same time, I think you can, through the art of conversation, approach these things in a way where you zoom in on the mystery or you recontextualize the mystery. And that's primarily, I guess, what I think you know I'm trying to do with Third Eye Drops. But to answer your question specifically about you know the nomenclature that I've sort of invented, or may, I don't know if I invented it, maybe someone else has said techno-dharma or techno-delic or whatever. But for me, it's just, again, it is sort of playful. It's sort of tongue-in-cheek. But I think it is really pointing to something that is unfolding. It's not, like you mentioned, Dharma is really associated with Eastern religions, like the teachings, the sort of transcendent truth that Eastern philosophy is trying to hit people with, you know, whether it's Buddha, whether it's Hinduism, whether it's one of the other ancient Eastern religions. And I think that there is immense power in the way they've mapped consciousness in mindfulness practices and meditation in a lot of the ways that they think about reality. But at the same time, we have this crazy technological, scientific, 
super empirical unfolding that's happening alongside of it. And they're paralleling one another. And it's very, very difficult to try to get them to intersect, to try to wrap a bow around them or make sense of them in light of one another. And that's something I'm really interested in is how can we take, like I said, these ancient ideas with inherent value and like, you know, inward facing contemplative practices and meditation and thinking about really primary kind of the philosophical heart of these traditions, you know, concepts like unity, the nature of consciousness. How can we merge those with this very strange digital mycelial evolution that's going on? Although it's hard to place any kind of story or mythology over the top of technology, I think it is there if you dig hard enough. Yeah, absolutely. I like how you integrate the two, because if we do want to experience that true unity consciousness, we do have to realize that there is no distinction between those ends of the spectrum. The way that it's been taught previously through Eastern teachings is that we have to kind of transcend the human experience. And I think that there is this conversation that is going on right now in the human experience. As you said, we have to recontextualize the mystery. It's not about transcending the human experience. It's about unifying it through the use of technology. And I find that so interesting that, you know, when we think of technology as a way to transmute our human emotions and feelings and in talk, like I get to meet people like you on the internet and we get to have these conversations. I mean, that is just such a profound experience of the mystery of life and how it all comes together. So a lot of what we've been taught about spirituality or enlightenment is just so bifurcated. How do we kind of live in these meat suits of the human experience while not transcending it and also just not suffering? And that I'm pretty much asking you the meaning of life right now. Yeah. So that's yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, no, I mean, no pressure I mean, or anything. <laughs> alongside all of these Eastern ideas, of course, one of the core ones, especially to Buddhism, is dukkha, the innate suffering of just existing. And I don't think there's any getting around that. I think a lot of people want to believe that we're headed for some sort of transhumanist situation where we can eliminate all of the suffering that goes on with a analog existence that is breaking down in the face of cosmic pressure. It's like cellular turnover starts, entropy begins the process. So this reality of suffering, I, I don't think it is something that we're ever going to be able to get away from barring some sort of crazy technological, biological, genetic breakthroughs. And maybe we will extend our lives radically. Maybe we'll upload our consciousness. But of course, I don't know. But there's part of me that always feels like that that's missing the larger point. And once you start getting into what the larger point is, this is, you know, really the beginnings of philosophy, of course. If you believe the existentialists like Camus and Sartre, they're going to tell you there is no innate purpose. It's just you're here. You push the Sisyphus boulder up the mountain and that's, you don't get a choice. That's just, you've essentially been inflicted with this destiny and the only meaning behind it is the meaning you make. And that's one route to go. And then you can go the religious route where you truly believe that everything's happening for a reason. You're here for a very specific purpose to express something into reality. And then there's like some kind of midpoint where Clearly, you're recognizing the cosmic 
existential chaos that you're existing within and then you're struggling to contextualize it and make sense of all of these philosophical problems that have never been answered like the problem of evil and you know Mm -hmm. why things are the way that they are and you know i don't think there's any one size fits all answer at all i'm scratching the surface of this in my writing right now and i'm really trying to figure out the best way to communicate this and i'm framing it essentially as the right kind of struggle because like you said you know how do we you asked me how do we avoid suffering mm-hmm. and i actually think asking the question in a little bit of a different way like how do we suffer in or struggle in the right way might mm-hmm. be a little bit of a better question because everything we do is a struggle like as you know doing a podcast is a struggle sometimes you schedule a podcast and the guest doesn't show up like last saturday <laughs> when i was uh, calling myself out when i just double booked myself and i completely had a scheduling breakdown there's innate discomfort in any process you choose like it's going to be hard to start a podcast it's going to be hard to start a business it's going to be hard to start a spiritual practice like literally think of anything there's going to be struggle and resistance so i think the better question is what do you want to struggle toward? You know, Mm -hmm. because if you don't really name that thing, if you don't really sit down and think about that, then you're going to be struggling for things that are inflicted upon you. You're going to struggle for a job you don't want. You're going to struggle through college because your dad wanted you to go to college. It's going to be this never-ending series of phenomena that you're going to be confronted with. And to an extent, you know, we don't get to pick everything, but to an extent, we do get to pick what do I want to struggle toward and what do I just have to struggle toward because there's no, there's no choice. And I think very few people, unfortunately, are really exercising that choice of what they want to struggle toward. Mm. I think that's the beginning of, of an epiphany personally. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that there is this cosmic existential chaos as you so eloquently described it as, you know, it all comes down to the root of the meaning of it. And we can look at the meaning of our lives through different quote unquote reality tunnels as Robert Anton Wilson likes to call it and really choose what has meaning and what doesn't. And then only see life through that lens of reality, which, you know, to one extent, it really eases a lot of that existential angst. And another side of that coin is that you can become crazy. You can only see life through a certain lens, which maybe people don't agree with. So, you know, I don't know, you do a lot of reading as to philosophy and kind of how we got to where we are today. What do you see that's new, you know, when you look at all the past literature and past philosophies, how are we today in history different from where we were decades ago? How do you see the choice of how we interpret reality as affecting our future? I think in a lot of ways our fundamental situation hasn't really changed. And I also think that there's a very real reason why people have been so steadily obsessed with Plato and Aristotle for like 2000 plus years. Like they really did, at least in terms of Western thinkers, lay such a solid, solid groundwork for understanding yourself, understanding your soul, understanding what it means to be virtuous, understanding what knowledge even is, you know, all all of these really innately burning human questions. And, you know, you see them essentially getting ripped off all throughout history or just people just subtly changing what they already said, you know, like a lot of the 
medieval Christian scholars like Aquinas were just, they're just famous for essentially repackaging a lot of these same ideas in a Christian way. I still think that these are enormous sources of knowledge that we should all go back with, like go back to rather is starting with the ancient Greeks and ancient Eastern thinkers. But I think I don't want to be biased, but I think as Western thinkers, a lot of times we're, we're almost like mesmerized. And, and I'm a huge fan of, of Eastern thought, Eastern religion. I have a meditation practice. You know, I, in college, I studied Buddhism and Eastern religions fairly, you know, seriously. But I think we get a little bit mesmerized by the alien nature of the culture. And then that sometimes can distract us from what they're really trying to say. Like we get obsessed with the way they dress and the cool mala beads and the, <laughs> like, and the, the, the interesting language, you know, and reciting Sanskrit. Um, yeah. It's, it's like, okay, but what, what is that? Are you actually cutting through that to get to the heart of it? Or is it this becoming some sort of like, you know, spiritual, materialistic, peacock feathering thing. <laughs> I think there's absolutely real knowledge across the board, but I think if anybody hasn't done it, just gone back to kind of understand the a lot of the basic ideas being proposed by Plato and Aristotle, they should absolutely go back to that. I think Plato is probably the most influential thinker in my life, without question. Interesting. Yeah, I listened to your recent episode with Tim Freak who has a TED speech on um, yeah. whether we're clever monkeys or immortal souls. And you guys were waxing poetic about Plato. And he vehemently denies a lot of what Plato talks about. And I loved hearing that conversation and discussion because it really goes to show how different we can view reality. Tim says about Plato and, and how do you feel about those types of coming up, bumping up against the perception of your reality based on what you formed previously? Well, what I think is really interesting about Tim is that, I mean, he is the nicest, most friendly, like always wearing a smile, just genuine, genuine person. And what I really love about him is he is one of the very few people, you know, you asked the question earlier about how has our situation changed? How has philosophy changed? He is someone who's actually trying to propose something new, like something new from a spiritual standpoint. And I think it's very, very interesting what he's proposing, which is essentially this idea of epiphenomenal spirituality, where what he's essentially putting forth is this paradigm where soul is emerging alongside the human mind. Like, you know, it, as he points out, according to ancient Greek philosophers like Plato, like Aristotle, like Socrates, the psyche, you know, what we think of as the mind is the soul, mm -hmm. but it's not just the mind, like our thoughts, like what you think about on a daily basis. Plato actually considered that level of the mind to be highly polluted by, you know, the desires of the body, by the, you know, preoccupations of the ego and status and blah, blah, blah. But what he believed is that at the heart of that, if you're able to strip away, you know, all of the pollution through this process he called catharsis, you could eventually get to this kind of true state of the psyche or soul that was like this pure kind of light, like the light of the philosopher, where you were just, you know, pure awareness, pure knowledge. And I think that Tim would agree with everything up to that point. But what he's really arguing is that you know, whereas for Plato, he believed that this was emanating from some sort of like higher dimension, you know, the realm of forms, as he called it, where there is this realm of pre-existing perfection. 
and this is from what I understand, it's sort of like, you know, the pure state of the soul or the mind is kind of like our connection to that higher realm. And then everything else is sort of like a pollution or like a sort of a distraction that's down on our level. What Tim is trying to say is that, no, this is all real. And what we're thinking of as soul is this newly emergent thing that has actually grown out of our evolution over the course of billions of years. So it's kind of like he's inverting this paradigm where instead of emerging from consciousness or soul or some predefined intelligence pattern like logos or whatever you want to call it, he's almost saying it like, no, we've evolved materially. And now there's this new kind of psychical, spiritual realm coming out of people. So I think it's really interesting. It's all speculation or it's all subjective personal experience, but mm -hmm. I'm definitely all for somebody putting forth a new idea like this because you know i said this in the intro of the podcast i think it's bold i mean you've got to be bold to go out there and propose new ideas like this so yeah so i love it am i personally on board with it i don't know about that i don't know <laughs> about that but it's interesting yeah and i love that it's all based on that subjective human experience because that's all we really have when we are exploring all of these insights it's like you can read a book about another country but until you're actually in that country, you don't actually know if what you're reading is actually true. So instead of being in our heads and in the philosophies and in this metaphysical you know, existence of reality, you're actually like reading and absorbing, taking it in, integrating it into our human realities, and then using that as the basis for if it makes sense or not, and whether or not we want to move forward with that formed reality. And a lot of the times when I'm trying to understand this, my own personal experience and how it relates to others is synchronicity. And, you know, the synchronicities, maybe you've experienced this too, is just so like, there's no other way to explain it. And when things like that happen, and when they start to happen more often, you question whether signs from another life form in the future reporting back to us, or is it just all a coincidence that we can't really make sense of? So yeah, I guess my question is like, how do we interpret these synchronicities? You know, when we do push aside whatever is blocking those faculties to begin with, we begin to transcend the normal human, the alpha state of mind so that we are going into these deeper gamma, delta gamma states. And when we start to exist mm -hmm. in that meditative state in the, while we're like not dreaming or while we're not, you know, sleeping, we access this level of reality that is profound and it's real. <laughs> yeah, I'm with you. I do think there's something to like the slower moving, sleeping, meditative brain waves and being a little bit more open to whatever these, for lack of a better term, mysterious transmissions are. But yeah, synchronicities are one of those balls of waxes. It's just really difficult to start to melt down because it's not like there's an official threshold for synchronicities. You know, like some people are obsessed with seeing certain times on the clock, which I've, yeah, I've gone down that rabbit hole and I'll be like, oh, it's kind of funny. I've looked at the clock at 1111 every day for the past however many days. And then you see all the but, memes on Instagram. You're like, 1111, yeah. you're awakening. <laughs> right, exactly. And it's like, you know, that does happen yeah. every day. And you do look at your phone every day. But then there are just incredibly strange, you know, just... What are the odds you're going to look at your phone when all the numbers are the same? Pretty high. What are the odds that you're going to be listening to a podcast and then stop at a stop sign? And then, you know, right as you are 
thinking of something, the person on the podcast starts talking to about it, and then a truck drives by with the exact word the person on the podcast said that you also just thought about. Like Those are those weird moments where it's like three or four things at the exact same moment happened, and if you really try to wrap your mind around how that's possible, it's just you know it's the odds are astronomically low. They're astronomically low that those three things would have all lined up at the exact same time. And as far as how to make sense of that, I don't know. You know, you can think of it in so many different ways. You can think of it as, you know, something's trying to pop through and give you a message. You can think of it as just, and this is something Robert Anton Wilson was a big proponent of was, you know, yeah, test it. Go outside and look. I believe he said this in Prometheus Rising Mm -hmm. where he had all these experiments where he said, go outside and look like manifest quarters, just like go out there and just really believe you're going to manifest quarters <laughs> or something like that. Mm-hmm. And then he said, okay, now, now go out there and just believe that there's, you're not manifesting anything, that it's just pure random chance that you're finding quarters, you know, try both, like try all of these things on as, you know, different, you like to use one of your words, which is one of my favorite terms as well. Try these different reality tunnels on. Try looking at reality through these different glasses and see what feels right to you. When we're talking about things that people are subjectively experiencing, it's so open-ended, you know, it's so open-ended. It can be total delusion where people are just looking for patterns that aren't even really there or they're kind of, you know, these self-fulfilling prophecies. Or it could be, like you said, it could be transmissions from, you know, Plato's realm of ideas for all I know. I don't know. But yeah, I will say in my experience, they seem to coalesce around certain people in certain times and certain mm-hmm. notions. And that's when I really start to think about like, okay, I think my friendship with this person might be important. Like my friend Colin Frangicetto, mm-hmm. who I've had on the show a few times, he plays in an awesome band called Circus Survive. He's a great artist. And he's just one of the most psychedelic, whimsical, sweet, amazing people And he just has so many crazy synchronicity stories. And when I'm talking to him, when I'm hanging out with him, they seem to just crop up more and more. So yeah, do I think, I think there's absolutely something to them, Mm -hmm. but to try to really define it, I think is almost like insulting to whatever it is. I think it's designed to not make sense. You know, I think it's designed (laughs) to be asynchronous, to be non-causal, to not be ABC. So it's it, it makes sense that it should be it shouldn't really make sense, you know? Yeah, it really it's more fun when it when you're not sure of like the practicality of it all cuz then you can exist in that mystery of like okay, I'm just going to go and do this today and somehow this will orchestrate itself on the grand scheme of the universe and it'll all come full circle and make sense someday, but you know, when you get in your mind too much about it, I think it takes the fun away out of it and just like last night, I was talking with one of my dear friends and we were catching up and we were talking about the heart and like the importance of listening to what your heart has to say, because the electromagnetic frequency of the heart is like four times greater than that of the mind and the brain. And, you know, that shows the importance of getting the mind out of the experience, because as we were talking, 
I was watching the fog kind of roll by and there was like a few lights out on the horizon. And as we were talking, the light started beating and the same rhythm of a heartbeat. It was like, boom, boom. And I was looking and I was, we were talking about the heart and it was like, boom, boom. And all of a sudden, like everything just got like dark and all I could see is this heartbeat through the windows. And I was just kind of like, whoa, like this really transcendent kind of conversation and experience right before, like in the middle of this deep conversation. And, and I find that it's, you know, it's helpful to kind of explore the mind and like really think logically. Robert Anton Wilson kind of proposes the idea that we could be communicating with Syrians from another planet. And there are these like weird moments that are liberating to some, but they're also like really scary to other people, you know? So how do we kind of find the fusion between seeing them as reality or seeing them as, you know, truths to our existence versus kind of being a little bit uh, weirded out by them, maybe? I think for me, I definitely get out there with this shit in terms of wondering about what are, if any, these unseen forces? You know, what are the engines of the synchronicity? Is this like cosmic code makers going, let's give this a try and then making <laughs> some weird, you know, overlaps happen? Is is it beings from Glorblap 4000 or whatever? You know, I mean, it's, I, I think it's really fun to think about all of these things. And if anybody follows the news, we legitimately have former, I believe it was a deputy defense secretary on Good Morning America either yesterday or the day before, openly admitting to the fact that, yeah, UFOs are real. Here's some declassified footage. We actually don't know what they are. They break all the rules of physics that we build our planes by. And he's being asked by the host of Good Morning America. So where are these things from? You know, this massive open-ended question. He's like, either some government has massively leapfrogged us and passed us up in their technological prowess, or this is not of earthly origin. So let me be totally out. Like, I mean, this could definitely be the case that there's some sort of extraterrestrial presence. I don't know. It's pretty interesting. However, once I do go down this rabbit hole far enough, I start to really realize how slippery my grip is and how it almost doesn't really matter because I just don't have, this is not a part of reality. If it even is real that I have any control over. And I think like we were saying before, you know, if I were to have to choose between <laughs> someone developing a practice of sitting down and trying to commune with Pleiadians through like some sort of psychic transmission or sit down and really think about what struggles in their life they would like to uptake and, and engage with, I'm going to tell you to do the latter. <laughs> I'm going to tell you to really think about the things in life you can touch and that you can influence with your will. Because as you and I both know, as people who make a podcast and are trying to build communities and trying to do creative things, the satisfaction you get out of that is like nothing else. Mm -hmm. It's like, you know, when I get the messages that I, I get for my podcast or you get the messages you get for your podcast, it's the feeling of there's no doubt in my mind that this is how I should be spending my time. This is what I'm supposed to be doing. No one in my life, in my day jobs I've ever held has been like, thank you so much, man. Like your show did this and that for me or what you did for me just really changed my life. And it, this is happening. You know, yeah. it's like happens to me now, like to a point where it's it's crazy because I remember sitting around few years ago, I was working as a special education aide in an elementary school. 
you know, just fantasizing about starting a podcast, just thinking, you know, mm-hmm. like checking my social media, thinking about how to do this, like sneaking off to the bathroom and like trying to like take moments to think of stuff or work on a website or whatever. And now I'm in this position where I get messages on a daily basis from people saying, thanks for exploring these ideas. And that to me, that's like, I feel like it would be insulting for me not to go out there and tell people, hey, you do this, you know, Mm -hmm. do this thing that you can touch with your hands, that you can change your life. You can change the people around you. You can change your mood by creating things. Mm -hmm. And I think that's so much more important than worrying about like what's out there and what you can contact. Absolutely. A hundred percent. And believe me, like I've been down those rabbit holes and it's, it gets a little weird. And it's interesting that you bring up, you know, how the deputy defense secretary points out about there's now aliens. And I have like a healthy skepticism, I think now in terms of what I believe is real and how it's almost all orchestrated on the grand scale. I don't know if you've read the book, Behold Pale Horses by William Cooper. I've heard of it, but no, I no, I haven't read it yet. Yeah, I read that book and it just kind of flipped my view of reality and when we're getting access to certain information and why and kind of everything is like, not to be too pessimistic about reality, but I kind of went through that nihilistic view of humanity mm-hmm. and it is depressing as fuck. So it's kind of like nothing matters. You know, there's this meaninglessness of it all once you go down those rabbit holes and I don't like it. You know, I love it because I can access it from my mind, but you can get really depressed. And then I choose to go on the other side of the spectrum and I'm like, wait, everything matters. So there's this healthy skepticism where we support the idea that everything could potentially be meaningless and this existential kind of Camus, like reality tunnel where we exist and then just operate and using that almost as a passionate anger, like not living in that nihilistic state of depressiveness where we can't change things and going to that, like you were saying, to creation and actually existing from this place, like, wait, everything matters. My life is the most creative story and creative project I can possibly work on. So I'm going to create my life in a magical way and design my life in a way that I love so that I can not only help myself, but help others, which is pretty much the very definition of what a podcast is today. It's this intimate medium where we can connect and change our lives just by talking through a microphone to someone on the other side of the country. (laughs) Yeah. I don't want to go two different directions here. My first question is, can you sum up the sort of thesis of that book a little bit? Because I know I know it's generally about, you know, sort of the idea of how, like you said, information is orchestrated or like, you know, there's a narrative that's being spun that we're just being fed in a very deliberate way. But is, is there anything else? Is, is that mainly it? Or oh, yeah, there's a lot more to it. I mean, he includes half the book is actual official government documents that oh, show... Wow exactly when in history, like if you go back to like late 90s or so, this book was written in, I think, the early 90s. And he talks about school shootings. And, you know, I don't want to go too far down the depressive rabbit hole. But he talks about the fact that the government is going to issue these press releases. And this is what's going to happen in reality. And that's when we kind of talk, go down the rabbit hole of false flags. And is the government orchestrating these deliberate shootings or, you know, what reality is this? And then you start to see the media on a whole different level. And I've been part of it. I used to work in media, the traditional media. So I know how the sausage is cooked. (laughs) So that comes from my own personal experience. I'm actually proving it with my own research. And I have many different opinions on that, which I don't want to go too far 
off on that tangent. But yeah, the thesis of his book, he talks about the government and really has official documentation of the planned programming of humanity through the government. And one of his quotes is, read everything, listen to everybody, believe nothing unless you can prove it with your own research. And he came from a very practical perspective and wrote this book. And, you know, he ended up, I don't know, you can research what happened to him. But once he started putting the ideas out into the world, he actually became like target because the government doesn't really want all this information out in the world. So once you start talking about it, you become kind of a target yourself in a way. So yeah, this has been quite a week for conspiracy theories, too, because, you know, I mentioned the UFO thing. Mm -hmm. But I just read today, too, that I'm not going to go too deep into it because literally all I read was a headline. But it was an ABC News headline saying that Monsanto and their parent company, I think it's Merck Pharmaceuticals, had a like a destroy, silence, discredit or like nullify list or something mm -hmm. where they would like essentially like doctors or people who were whistleblowing against them. They had structured ways to destroy or possibly even kill some of these people. And this is like crazy conspiracy theory shit sounding, but this is like mainstream news sources reporting this stuff now. So between that and the UFO thing, this has been a crazy week for, you know, things that if you would have told me them a few months ago, I'd be like, wait, what source is this coming from? Are you sure? I have no doubt that this stuff, terrible, appalling things have for sure been done and for sure been orchestrated. But I also doubt today with the diversity of channels, you know, like the fact that news sources are watched less than they ever have been. I feel like it's getting harder and harder to create and push narratives. But at the same time, I think like things like election interference and orchestrated memification of certain messages has shown to be extremely potent in like, you know, shifting the tide of elections, shifting the tide of thought, like programming people with catchphrases. It's there's still a lot of shady tactics going on on pretty big levels, I think, for sure. A hundred percent. And even mainstream, quote unquote, credible news organization. And I, I can't even put the word mainstream and credible in the same sentence without laughing. But if you look at the New York Times, for example, a lot of the recent headlines is about tricking well-meaning news consumers into buying into propaganda. So it's you really just need to question everything. But at the same time, it, there's such a delicate balance between living, like just actually living your life and not getting so caught up in all these conspiracy theories that are in service to the Orwellian matrix agenda, because a lot of them are in service to that and questioning what information you're getting and why you're getting it it's, in certain times can lead you down a really tricky rabbit hole. So I talk about this a little bit in with an episode with Bernard Gunther, who talks more about the mainstream media and their agendas. So I love talking this stuff. And what is your favorite, you know, speaking of conspiracy theories, do you have like, quote unquote, like a favorite one of the moment or one that you're super fascinated about that you're questioning your reality in this moment in time? Like favorite in terms of being like ludicrous. I mean, a, f a fun one has to be reptilians. That's a super fun one. Yeah. And that's another one where it's like, you know, I have no control or way of verifying this. And even if it's real and they're like sitting in back rooms and cloaks and they're, you know, <laughs> fucking manipulating the unseen planes of reality. I, I, I cannot do anything about that. So to me, the dark side of conspiracy theories, and I think I wrote about this in one of my articles about why it's really important to be your own guru mm -hmm. is that 
it sort of frees people of personal responsibility because they can offload everything negative in their life to some external source, like fill in the blank. You know, it could be a mainstream source. Maybe, you know, people think all their problems are because of Republicans, Democrats, lizards. Like, you <laughs> Especially know, the lizards. Matrix, matrix yeah. makers. Yeah, I mean, people, <laughs> like, you know, and it's it's like, but what can you do? But what can you do? Mm-hmm. You know? And I think I think that's where people should be focusing the bulk of their consideration and the bulk of their efforts is what they can actually do and what they can actually touch. You know, mm-hmm. it's like really things that look mundane from a thousand foot view, when you start to do them on a daily basis, they're profound. Like they're actually massively important to your well-being and to your personal evolution. That's said i will go down one more rabbit hole quick in terms of uh conspiracy theories that i think are fun and interesting Mm -hmm. i just had a guy named andrew gallimore on my podcast and he is a phd neuropharmacologist and he has a book out called alien information theory and essentially his thesis is that for anybody who's ever had a very deep psychedelic experience or dmt experience especially with DMT because of the quickness of the onset upon ingesting it or inhaling it, your reality is so quickly shifted into this realm of morphing geometry and intelligence and what seems to be a lot of people. I haven't had this exact experience, but what a lot of people say are clearly other beings. The elves are you talking about? Sure. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. People call them all, all sorts of different things. Terrence McKenney and, machine elves or, or whatever, but he's done a lot of personal research on this. And he's also worked with uh, Rick Strassman a bit and he's worked, you know, with other, what I would consider to be legitimate scholars and doctors. And he is putting together this whole theory of information, basically like believing that this, there is information from essentially a different dimension from higher realms, higher sources of consciousness that are coming down and that we can contact them briefly through DMT. And he thinks that it's like, it's almost like this ultimate Rubik's cube to be solved. Mm-hmm. Like the reason why, um, if you're familiar with the fact that DMT is this unbelievably simple, simple chemical substance that's in like pretty much every plant, every animal, it's in the human liver, it's probably in the human brain. And he believes it's ubiquitous because it's like this something that is a fundamental and b it's like it's there as sort of like a clue it's like the little key sort of where it's like you got to use this that's what's up with the ubiquity according to him that's a fun one yeah that's a really fun one what do i think about it i don't know yeah yeah i think that there's a really deep alienation pun intended (laughs) on earth today um which leads us to an initiation to a different kind of play and a different kind of nature of ourselves that, you know, like you said, do I believe it? I don't know. Like maybe we can test this out and see where it goes. But I find it fascinating that people are writing books like this about alien information theory. And we can, we have the ability to read these books and maybe we're, as we're reading it, and there is still a part of the skepticism going on in our brains, but we are maybe downloading these codes so that our future selves, 100 years from now, are we going to be more okay with the information? You know, there's a constant evolutionary process because we ourselves, our bodies, our technology, we're software. So as we begin kind of installing these new ideas and with hints of skepticism, 
we are slowly reprogramming our bodies and our minds to be accepting of these really radical ideas that are out there. And that itself is, mm-hmm. is just magical to me. And I approach it with a healthy dose of skepticism as well, because do we really want to be doing that? Do we want to, or do we want to just see our bodies as these pure beings that we need to protect from technology? I go down different rabbit holes and I like the idea that we need to be fully embodied in our own unique software separate from technology at times, because I feel like once we start integrating that technology with our bodies, we become these, you know, as you alluded to earlier, these transhumanists, um, which, you know, for better or worse, it, it is part of another agenda that we may not be aware of and we may not be conscious or we don't have the ability to like have autonomy of our own selves, which is not ideal. So, you know, there's always a delicate dance of like allowing technology to evolve our humanity versus allowing our humanity to evolve alongside that technology. Mm -hmm. It's going to be very, very weird once we start letting things inside of us on a massive scale, because many people have argued that we're already quote unquote cyborgs. I forget, like there's a famous writer who Mm-hmm. Said, like humanity is already cyborgs like we have a symbiotic relationship with technology we rely on it for everything we go everywhere with our phones we live a large portion of our lives in a digital space like we're already cyborgs we don't need to have chips implanted in our heads to be cyborgs to a certain extent i'm on board i, I get what he's saying but there's still a huge difference between holding on to a device that i can put over there i can turn off and having like Elon Musk Neuralink mm-hmm. in, my, in my brain full time. There's a big chasm there. And I think when we get to that, I mean, I think it's pretty much a foregone conclusion that resist as much as you want. Like, who do you know that doesn't still doesn't have a smartphone? Everybody had that friend who was resistant, right? That had the flip phone and they're like, no, I'm fine with the flip phone. <laughs> it does everything I want it to do. I don't need that shit. I don't, it's, I don't need a video game on me. You know, like you, you, everybody yeah. had that friend. Uh-huh. And they all have smartphones now. It's like you have to try really hard to not have one. And there's going to come a point where it's going to be the same thing with whatever the next wave of technology is. Like maybe you can hold out for a year. Maybe you can hold out for two years or five years. But eventually it's going to get in there one way or another. And it's going to be very strange. Yeah, but. for sure. So I know you're writing your first book, and I'm curious how the writing of your book and the interviewing of the guests on your podcast, how do you find the balance? Or does writing support your podcast and does podcasting support your writing? How are you finding the, the mix of both? Absolutely. Yeah, both. Because what I think I was talking to Corey Allen about this recently, who has a wonderful podcast that everyone should check out. He's a fabulous human, great friend. We we're talking about how podcasting is much more of a, it's this kind of warbly, stochastic canvas where you can talk about this and then take a hard left turn and talk about that and not finish this idea and then go over here and jump to that idea because maybe that idea was shitty and you just want to abandon it. You know, you can do these types of thing in podcasting. You cannot do it in good writing. Like good writing really requires you to process, sit with, think about ideas, decide, oh, does that really flow into that? I'm not sure if that flows into it very well. I got to work on that tradition or uh, transition rather. So I think it makes you think in more complete, more structured 
ways, and that's really good for a certain type of reasoning and intelligence. And then I think that that can flow back into your podcasts and help you stay with ideas, help you go into the podcast with more fully formed ideas. So I do think that there's sort of this nice reciprocal relationship between the two where they complement one another. But it's, I mean, it's very, very different, of course, because, you know, at the end of the day, it's the way we podcast, at least, is a very social, active, intellectual tennis match, right? Where we're doing this adaptive thing and you're thinking about, oh, that's a good point. That reminds me of this and that. And we're, we're both in the flow, whereas writing is just like you're in the chair and you're like, you're like, oh, you know, like trying to summon yeah. something out. I mean, they're very, very different, but I absolutely do think that they inform and improve one another in interesting ways. Yeah. And one last question before we start to wrap up. How do you find the guests for your show? And do you integrate any meditation practices into the curation and interview process of your podcast? The booking aspect of it has metamorphosized a bit. I mean, as you probably know, when you first start, it's really incumbent upon you to make the connection or leverage someone that knows someone or almost like put together a little pitch resume type thing to tell someone why they should give you their time and go on your show. But then, you know, as Third Eye Drops has begun to blossom a bit, you know, you get your Rolodex, people hear the show. So you start to, you know, have regulars, you start to have a little bit of a reputation. So then people start to reach out to you to be on the show. But I do still kind of cold call people as well, because, you know, you got to keep reaching for that either next, I guess you could perceive it as a, a higher tier of guest or uh, someone that just you don't have any connections to. So you want to reach out to them. So it's definitely a little bit of a, you know, mixed bag there, so to speak. But the meditation question is interesting. Can you sort of flesh that out? I'm not sure if I... Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm just curious because I'm, yeah, like Third Eye Drops is the name of your podcast. So I just find it interesting kind of like we practice what we preach kind of like I like to apply what I learn to my podcasts and the way that I find guests is like really contemplative. I don't like interviewing guests just for the sake of having a guest. I really give it deep thought and meditate on it before I reach out to anyone. And I was just curious. I, I don't know if anyone else doing this. And I was just curious if you status quo or the default mode is to kind of liken it to the 24 hour news cycle, 24, you know, seven, always in your face kind of consistency. And as you know, I do things a little differently. I have seasons and I kind of contemplate between my seasons, contemplate between guests, between what I'm reading to really give the best version of the guests and the conversation so that they can happen. So I was just curious if you had a similar process to how I do that, which is really different. And I'm not expecting you to say yes. I was just kind of entirely curious. <laughs> Again, it's sort of mixed because there are some that I fantasize about for months and that I really, really want. And then there are some that fall into my lap and then I have to think about it and think, okay, do I want to do this? Does this fit? You know, what does my episode stack look like? Do I really need an episode? So sometimes, unfortunately, yeah, those things do enter into, you know, just necessity of... I don't have a show for next week and I really need one that, yeah, I mean, that absolutely happens. I wish they were all super well contemplated. I wish every single one I've ever done is like my favorite ever, but yeah, I mean, there's, there's a couple of ploppers in there. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> or I'm like, 
eh, I wouldn't do that again. <laughs> I did it, you know, and it's, it's over now. Well, as a listener, I don't think I've noticed that one, but yeah, maybe, maybe I should be, okay. I'd be more lighthearted about it. Like your approach, it's just, everything is so deep and meaningful and, and coming from that angle that it's like everything you do has to be so profound, but it's kind of exhausting at the same time. So it's refreshing here that you sometimes just go on yeah. a whim. <laughs> so that's good to know. Yeah. And for me, I'm really doing, you know, I've definitely thought about bringing other people in to help me book, to help me do some of the more administrative parts of it. But it's weird because it's like, as soon as you give up any element of control, now you're like stressing about, oh, wait, are they going to do this right? I hope they don't say something dumb in the email. I hope they don't. <laughs> oh, but I would not have edited that part out. I don't really care if I said, um, but this person's going through deleting every, um, you know, it's just like yeah. all these things are just like, fuck it. I'll just, I'll just keep doing it myself. But eventually I think I do need, I do need to have a little bit more strategized, focused yeah. ways of approaching some of these things. Because like you saw, again, I'll call myself out again last week. I double booked myself and made you reschedule. So <laughs> things happen when yeah you're not, when you're not careful yeah it's not a big deal i um fully appreciate you and i know how busy your schedule is and how many books you read and it's all you know coming to the table with these deep conversations is so helpful for our listeners so i do appreciate and value your time third eye drops is the name of your podcast everybody check it out on itunes and leave a review on his podcast and also leave a review on this podcast if you dig it where can listeners find you elsewhere online ThirdEyeDrops.com. I am at Third Eye Drops or some variation of that on most social media platforms. And yeah, wherever you get podcasts. And I suppose if you really like it, you can become a Patreon patron at patreon.com forward slash Third Eye Drops. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining me, Michael. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Thank you. You made it to the end of this podcast. This means the world to me. I hope you enjoyed our conversation. Feel free to hop on over to my podcast website, artofhumanity.io, for show notes or past interviews. You can also message me on social media. I'm on Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. My name is Jessica Ann, and my handle is beingishuman. That's B-E-I-N-G-I-S-H-U-M-A-N. I'd love to hear from you and learn more about what you've enjoyed from this episode. If you really love this podcast, I'd highly appreciate it if you went on Apple Podcasts right now and left a review. It helps way more than you know. You can also share this episode with two of your friends who you think would enjoy it. Let's get the Art of Humanity movement going. Thank you for listening. Until the next episode, evolve your business with the Art of Humanity. Listen, explore, evolve.